I just got out of a bath. It was glorious. I have this, there's a time of day that it's really good to take a bath. Like right before the sun gets really intense on me, on my porch. So I could take that bath and then air dry. So I, I literally, like I'm soaking wet right now. I'm not wearing headphones, so I hope it sounds okay. But yeah, I only take baths like once every few weeks. I, sh I shower, I've showered probably three, four times since I've been here. I'm talking about March 9th or 10th. I just go in the ocean every day, about twice a day. And the water feels so good on my skin that I just don't, I don't wash. I just, I'm just natural. I also don't see anyone. So it's like, I don't think anyone really cares. So, you know, it's all working out great for me. Um, I'm going to read again today. I didn't want to have any guests this weekend. thought like Father's Day and stuff. I like did a lot of a lot of ruminating, a lot of talking yesterday, but I'm just going to do a quick thing today. I don't think anyone's really listening right now, so this is something that people can catch up on later. So I don't really care about doing anything timely right now. And rather, this is an episode that relates to Sarah Gran from a few weeks ago that came out of my reading her book, called Come Closer, which I'm going to read the first, I don't know, first chapter or so. Um, and if you listened to that episode, I go in a little bit about why I connected with Sarah. And I can, I can tell the story again now for those who didn't, who didn't hear it already. But um, I was in Oaxaca in February. And I had been like, I had been sick and recovering and up and down and I have, I, I don't drink a lot at this point in general, but I really like last year or so, I really haven't drank much at all. Like, I don't think I've had three drinks in a, in, in, you know, in a, in a, in a day all year and I hadn't had one in a while at this point, but it, it it didn't feel like the alcohol had anything to do with it. And I had been in the sun that day for a while. Like, I did get a little burnt. It wasn't that crazy, though. And I was in the ocean, and I was, like, you know, I was body surfing. I, was, I wasn't surfing, but I did, like, twirl around a little bit in some, you know, more aggressive waves. But I still have no explanation for this and we thought at one point maybe someone was drugging me someone was you know trying to rob me or something I don't know but I went for a pizza I think I I think I was ordering I don't know if I don't know what it was but I didn't get to the food I had one sip of this tequila cocktail or mezcal it was a mezcal it was like a ginger mezcal or mezcal old-fashioned, something like that. And I had one sip, and I just blacked out. Like, I woke up, but I didn't remember passing out. It was like all this, I just reset. And I hadn't had anything, like, there was no reason for this. It made no sense. And I 
texted my friend and I started like narrating the whole thing to her as I was because I wasn't getting it back. It was coming and going constantly. And I was really up when I was up, but then I'd go away and it would keep happening. So I was like Jason Borning, my situation, like scoping out, you know, who was there? Was I being, you know, was anyone looking at me? Was I being followed? Whatever. And there was like nothing because there was just no logic to it. And I don't know. Anyway, so so I FaceTimed my friend and I was like, okay, I'm going to try and go back. My hotel's two blocks away from where I am. And this walk was insane. Like, so I keep resetting and I can't focus on a thought while I'm taking an action and vice versa. So like if I want to keep walking, I can't change direction. I have to focus one uptime on changing direction. If I want to just keep taking steps, I have to just commit to the automatic taking steps. I can't tell myself where to go. So I have to kind of like connect these actions. I have to lead myself from the thought to the action. So what's scary about it is I forget that I'm walking while I'm walking and I'm on the side of the road. So I might forget that there's cars on my right hand side and I might turn right. Because, I don't know, something could have told me to tell right, to turn right. I, I, any thought gets in and I don't have enough time to dispel that thought. Then there was the, uh, the balcony that I had to walk across to get to my room. And I had to, con- I had to, figure, out, I had to figure out a strategy for how not to, to fall or jump. Because if I got the thought in of like, oh, what happens if I do that? Maybe I do it, you know? Maybe I try and answer my own question. That was what I was worried about. And then I was worried about leaning on things also. Because if I lean on something and then forget I'm leaning on it, then I no longer support myself and I fall. Or if I hold something that's dangerous, if I hold a knife or something like that, I forget that I'm holding the knife, I drop it on my foot, or I lean into it or something like that. It was, it was bonkers. I've never done drugs before. Anyone who's listening who doesn't know that, like, just, I've never done any drugs. And I have had my times where, like, I would drink every night, but not for a while, and it's never been a problem. Drinking, I've never been, like, a big drinker. Or even when I was, you know, volumetrically, (laughs) like, even when I would be DJing and having 10 drinks a night, like, I wasn't, like, fucked up. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't, like, no one would have... I was just, I could, it was easy. I didn't like get fat. I didn't get, you know, I didn't have hangover. It was no big deal. And then I just like, it, I just stopped caring. I stopped, but I can have drinks. You know, I could have five drinks. No problem. Normally. Uh, so I, and anyway, I had one sip. So we have no idea what this was. And I go back to the room and eventually, you know, it all works out. Like I get back to the room and I'm still on the phone with Magda. She's FaceTiming me throughout this. We recorded some of it actually. We lost a bunch of it because we we'd hit the button wrong, obviously. But um, we have the visual at least. Um, and so Sarah's book, Come Closer, is about a demonic possession, be that psychological or you know psychosomatic or real and I won't give it away but you know she she has a she has a person taking over her life and you know a demon and uh called Nama 
And I started conjuring this demon inside myself while I was in this state. And Magda doesn't know what I'm doing. Magda has no idea. But I started acting out the entire narrative of the book. And I started taking on voices. So I was already taking on voices because just like I couldn't commit to a thought and an action in the same uptime, that goes for my vocal cords. So I couldn't shape my speech while trying to speak. So I would have to either shape my speech, you know, you know, affect my cadence or pick my words. So I could go on a spree in some cadence, but the cadence would be random. I would have these outbursts of noise, of sounds that like were unfamiliar to me. And I would speak in tongues almost. I would speak as people that like, like I don't recognize my own voice. And if I want to get my voice back, I can't commit. I can't try and communicate while getting my voice back. So I would only have like, short bursts of uptimes. So what was happening during this um, streak of, you know, of Sarah's book of Come Closer was I was, uh, I was narrating, I was speaking to myself and narrating and coaching myself. So I was Nama, I was the demon. I was the person being taken over by the demon. I was describing like almost in third person and then I would get uptime and I would be self-aware and then I'd be me. I'd speak like you hear me now and I would be trying to tell myself first I think I debated it first I was like wait am I actually being possessed by a demon or am I acting out the book can you remember and I would be talking to myself I'm like can you remember if the book came into mind, or if I'm just realizing that this is the book, am I under the influence of the book? Or is it coincidental and am I just being taken over? Am I being possessed? Or am I acting out a thought from 20 minutes ago? And I was trying to get Magda to answer. I was like, can you remember if I said anything about this book? Did I start myself on this book? And you know, 20 minutes later, you forget. You, I, I, forget I forget two seconds later. So I don't remember where the streaks started. That's why I got so worried about if I had a violent thought or a self-harm thought that I couldn't get out of it. So there was one point, once I realized that the danger that I was in of self-harm, I, I started telling Magda, I was, I freaked out and I was like, distract me, distract me, distract me, distract me, distract me, distract me. I, I started repeating, you know, it, it was like a burst. And I was just like, you have to take me out, take me out, take me out, like get me somewhere, get, you know, bring me somewhere else. And, and she finally understood. And then I was a little more conscious. I was like up. I was still resetting, but I was like I had more control over it. And I, and I was able to take myself to another place, not as dark. Because I was worried. Normally I'm like, yeah, cool, bring the dark thoughts and meditate on them. But in this case, a dark thought could be the end of me. It was so wild. At some point, I went for, I don't know how long it was. It felt like it was probably about, you know, a half hour where I just made noises and I was laughing and screaming and I was, I was just, just yelping for a long time. And Magda's just like, you know, letting me go. And I'm just going, I'm just, you know, like crazy noises. And I would then laugh at myself and be like, this is so crazy. Like, what is going on? And eventually I got myself to sleep. Magda like waited and she like watched me go to sleep because going to sleep became its own action that I needed to keep committing to and repeating. So, and it's like, okay, I finally get, you know, I start falling asleep and then all of a sudden I'm like, 
you know, I get it, I get conscious again and I go back into it and it's a whole straight and that could be an hour. So it took me a few hours to get to sleep. Eventually I did. And then I was waking up while I was sleeping and it was just, um, it just started getting, you know, it started becoming like a minute up. I remember waking up and I, it was still happening, but it was happening like instead of every few seconds, it was happening like every minute. And then I woke up again. I, I slept like slept well. And then by the time I wake up, I was like pretty okay. I wasn't hungover. I was nothing. I was fine. I remember going in the, I remember going in the water there. If, if you follow my Instagram stories from February, like if you were around for them, you would have seen this. I talked about it right after. And I was like, this just happened to me, you know, six hours ago. I, I, I slept for what, however many hours. And like, I'm fine right now. I'm totally conscious. I'm going to go for a swim. Like I'm okay. I was also worried about going in the water because if I reset in the water, I drown, you know, but I went in the water the next morning and I was fine. And, and we've never figured it. Magda thinks it's sunstroke or something like that. I don't really know to this day. I don't really know. So anyway, so Sarah and I did an episode a couple weeks ago and we talked about this. I told her the story. She thinks I'm fucking nuts. She thinks I'm like, you know, I need help. I need to be committed and stuff. <laughs> you could hear her talk about it. Uh, but anyway, the book is wonderful. It's a quick read. It's like 200 pages. You can do it in a night. Um, you, it's, it's, it's one of those like, you know, literary fiction thriller types, psychological thriller types. And you just go in your head for like, you know, just like pour, just give yourself like a half a bottle of wine and open it and just like go straight through maybe two sittings. But it's it's a burst. It's it's a, it's a good read. Uh, I won't I won't tell anything else. But I highly highly recommend it. And I'm gonna read from the uh, the beginning. Okay, so this is Come Closer by Sarah Gran. And I hope I'm not wearing my headphones because I'm still wet from my bath. And I hope that I sound okay. If I don't, I don't know. I'm still gonna post it because I don't want to do it again. <laughs> okay. In January, I had a proposal due to my boss, Leon Fields, on a new project. We were renovating a clothing store in a strip mall outside the city. Nothing tremendous. I finished the proposal on a Friday morning and dropped it on his desk with a cheerful little note. Let me know what you think, while he was in a meeting with a new client in the conference room. Later that morning, Leon threw open his office door with a bang. Amanda, he called. Come in here. I rushed to his office. He picked up a handful of papers off his desk and stared at me, his flabby face white with anger. What the hell is this? I don't know. It looked like my proposal. Same heading, same format. My hands shook. I couldn't imagine what was wrong. Leon handed me the papers, and I read the first line. Leon Fields is a... I'm not going to say this because I just... I, uh... I just think like I'm cool with deleting this like there's two words you know like f word and n word like I'm cool with deleting them for the rest of my life I think I never want to say them. and f n and b when I was sorry Sarah I'm digressing for a second and I'm gonna get back to it but when I was a kid I watched Godfather part two on a mini DVD player. Remember those Sony the things where, where the bed, the, the flat part on the bottom, they opened up and there was, it was like a laptop, but the bottom was just the CD, you know, the DVD player. And then you flip it up and there's a little seven inch screen. It was like the coolest gadget ever. And I had one of those 
because my dad was like at a major record label at the time, so I got fancy things. And we were flying a we were flying to Rome because I was into Italian stuff at that time. I mean, it was the beginning of my like obsession with Italian culture, and I was watching The Godfather Part Two because like that's Italian, I guess. <laughs> um, and when Al Pacino, when Mikey, he backhands Kay, Diane Keaton, and says, you, you know, you be, I decided at that moment I was never going to use the word again. And I'll, I've said it in context. Like I've said it to describe not using the word again. But I've never said it in anger. I've never said it. Like the most I've ever done probably is like in sports. Maybe I've called like another guy that. But I've never used it at a woman. And I've never used it like with malice or anger. I just decided at that moment that it was ugly. And it didn't contribute to a universe that I wanted to exist in. And... I was going to do whatever, whatever tiny, tiny zero, zero, zero point zero, 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 one percent contribution that would provide. That was it. I, I was not going to do it. And same thing with F and, and I was catching up with a friend with a, well, you know, I could say she, she wouldn't care but with Annie Hudson Price, girl who I went to high school with. And she, cause this, this is a, you know, credit to her. She got up in assembly one day I'm pretty sure it was 10th grade and she was new to school and she told us that that's so gay is not cool is offensive and we shouldn't say it and she made a whole speech about it and we all laughed everyone was like everyone thought she was like too serious and annoying and pretentious and whatever but I remember that moment and I remember feeling so conflicted this is what we talked about about a week ago I remember feeling so strange because she and I weren't close we got close later I think you know end of senior year and then college and after we've been we were very very close for years and you know since then it's like a catch-up here and there but always you know lots of love but um she was around me when I was, it wasn't as overt as what she was dealing, she was dealing with something very tangibly difficult, and I was one who was aware and sensitive to it, and she was, I don't think she would phrase it this way, but she was with me for a very difficult time, I would consider it that way, but I don't think she would ever, she would ever, you know, take credit for having helped me in any way. I know how she is. She's so like overly, like annoyingly humble. And like I was, I was like thanking her for this perspective that she provided me with. So she gave me this perspective and, and, you know, as, as a 15 year old, whatever it was. And I felt something was wrong because everyone would say it, but like Annie, Annie was cool. She was downtown. She grew up a block away from where I was born. And then I, I grew up on, I was born on Irving place. And then moved uptown, and she lived right there. She lived on Gramercy Park, off Irving. And I always felt this like connection to her. She was artsy and stuff, but I didn't. I, I hadn't crossed that threshold of uh, 
I don't know. I was so I was a different kid, you know. I I I had this weird conflict with um with these, you know, I was talking about it a little bit yesterday with with Ash, like with these rich kids, these these it was it was like white people, you know. I I had this I I was on the upper east side and then I'd spend weekends in Bensonhurst and Queens. And I just like didn't know what to do with all that. And and my parents made it like it was this big victory to be, you know, where I was being raised. But I hated it and I felt really weird around all these people. And then there was someone like Annie who was gorgeous. I mean, she was like the most beautiful girl I like had ever seen at that time in my life. She was re- like weirdly you know I we were matched like in our culture but I didn't talk about it I just like didn't that wasn't my identity I was a sports kid and I was like a rebel I wasn't like the film nerd kid like that was like a joke that was like a hobby but she was really into it and like we didn't get in we didn't we didn't bond over that until later so when she made this speech it was like awkward for me because I was like, wait, that feels like my vibe. Like, I think she's right. I don't think I should talk like that. You know what? At, at around this, shortly before that, I had made, the, I had had the Godfather 2 moment. But I remember like not being strong enough or individual enough or whatever to cross the line of being like, hey, Annie, I think you're right and I think you're awesome and I want us to be best friends. I didn't do that until like a few years later. Thankfully, it all worked out, but I think back to that time, and it scares the shit out of me. It just scares the shit out of me being a 15-year-old, not being able to reconcile, not being able to do the right thing regarding calling someone gay when I really mean, like, stupid or something, not being able to do that part right because I have another identity problem. That's so terrifying to think about and I think about kids there now who deal with that and it's it just it is so it, it's heartbreaking and terrifying that's the only thing that scares me is just not making the world that I want to live in so that's why I you know I, I quit everything a few years ago because I was like the only thing like the, as much fear as I have about the small things about being in meetings where I'm intimidated by people or I don't feel connected to people or I feel like someone else is more accomplished or something like that. That fear became nothing compared to the fear of not reconciling what I talked about from when I was 15 and I need to build that world. So that's what I've been committed to. And I don't think we should say F or N or B. In the context of this book, it's fine. I know why she wrote it, but uh, that wasn't the point I was making. I was more just going on a digression. Um, anyway, okay, I'm going to get back to the book. I'll go back a little bit. What the hell is this? I don't know. It looked like my proposal, same heading, same format. My hands shook. I couldn't imagine what was wrong. Leon handed me the papers, and I read the first line. Leon Fields is a cocksucking F-A-G-G-O-T. 
What is this? I asked Leon. He stared at me. You tell me. You just dropped it on my desk. My head spun. What are you talking about? I put the proposal on your desk. Not this. The proposal for the new job. I sifted through the papers on his desk for the proposal I had dropped off. What is this, a joke? Amanda, he said. Three people said they saw you go to the printer, print this out, and bring it to my desk. I felt like I had stepped into a bad dream. There was no logic, no reason anymore. Wait, I said to Leon. I ran back to my desk, printed out the proposal, checked it, and brought it back to Leon's office. He had calmed down a little and was sitting in his big leather chair. I handed it to him. This is it. This is exactly what I put on your desk this morning. He looked over the papers and then looked back up at me. Then where did that come from? He looked back at the fake proposal on the desk. How would I know, I said. Let me see it again. I read the second line. Leon Fields eats shit and likes it. Disgusting, I said. I don't know, so someone playing a trick on you, I guess? Someone thinks it's funny? Or playing a trick on you, he said. Someone replaced your proposal with this. I'm sorry, I thought. He looked around the office, embarrassed. In the three years I had worked for him, I had never heard Leon Fields apologize to anyone, ever. It's okay, I told him. What were you supposed to think? We looked at each other. I'll look over the proposal, he said. I'll get back to you soon. I left his office and went back to my own desk. I hadn't written the fake proposal, but I wished I knew who did. Because it was true. Leon Fields is a cocksucking F-A-G-G-O-T. And he did eat shit, and I had always suspected that he liked it very much. That evening, I was telling my husband, Ed, about the little mystery at work when we had heard the tapping for the first time. We were sitting at the dinner table, just finishing a meal of takeout Vietnamese. Tap, tap. We looked at each other. Did you hear that? I think so. Again, tap, tap. It came in twos or fours, never just one. Tap, tap. And the sound had a drag on it, almost like a scratching behind it, like the claws on a wood floor. First, Ed stood up, then me. At first, then the sound seemed to be coming from the kitchen. So we walked to the kitchen and bent down to listen under the base of the refrigerator and looked under the stove, but then it seemed to be coming from the bathroom. In the bathroom, we checked under the sink and behind the shower curtain, and then we determined it was coming from the bedroom. So we walked to the bedroom and then to the living room and then back to the kitchen again. After we toured the apartment, we gave up. It was the pipes, we decided. Something to do with the water flow or the heating system. Maybe a mouse running around the apartment inside the walls. Ed was revolted by the idea, but I thought it was kind of cute. A little mouse with the spunk to make it up four stories and live on a few crumbs. We both forgot about the story I'd been telling, and I never told Ed about the practical joke at work. The tapping went on for the rest of the winter. Not all the time, but for a few minutes. Every second or third night. Then at the end of the month, I went, on, I went to a conference on the West Coast for two days, and Ed noticed that he, hadn't, he, he didn't hear it at all while he was gone. A few weeks later, Ed went to a distant cousin's wedding up north for three days. The tapping went on all night, every night, while he was gone. I searched the apartment again, chasing the sound around and around. I examined the pipes, checking every faucet for drips, turned the heat on and off, and still the tapping continued. I cleaned the floors of any crumbs a rodent could eat. I even bought a carton of unpleasant little spring traps, and the sound was still there. I turned up the television, ran the dishwasher, spent hours on the phone with old, loud friends, and I still heard it. Tap, tap. I was starting to think this mouse wasn't so cute anymore. The noise wasn't so unusual, really. Our building was close to 100 years old, and one expected that kind of noise. 
It had been built as an aspirin factory when the city still had an industrial base. After the industry moved out, one developer after another had tried to do something with the neighborhood, full of abandoned factories and warehouses like ours, but the schemes never took off. It was too far from the city, too desolate, too cold at night. As far as I was concerned, it was better that the... the it was better that the development hadn't gone as planned. Our building was still only half full. I liked the peace and quiet. The first time we saw the loft, I was absolutely sure it was home for us. Ed needed a little convincing. Think of the quiet, I told Ed. No neighbors. Conduits were in place for lighting and plumbing, but they had never been utilized. We would have to do major renovation. Think of the possibilities, I cried. We can build it from scratch. Six white columns held up the place. Heat was provided by an industrial blower hung from the ceiling. It has character, I told Ed. It has personality. He relented, and we got the place at half of what we would have paid elsewhere. We spent the extra money on renovation. Ed gave me free reign to do as I pleased. I was an architect, and now I could be my own dream client. I designed every detail myself. From the off-white color of the walls to the porcelain faucets on the kitchen sink to the installation of the fireplace along the south wall, which cost a fortune but was worth the money. The neighborhood, though, was sometimes difficult. No supermarkets, no restaurants, a few small grocery stores that specialized in beer and cigarettes. The edge of the closet commercial district for shopping was 10 blocks away, and the nearest residential area was on the other side of that. But we adjusted quickly. We had a car to take us wherever we wanted on nights and weekends, and during the week we usually took the train to work. Our other concern when we first moved in was the crime, but soon enough we found out there was none. It was too desolate even for criminals. I did, however, come to be scared of the stray dogs that patrolled the neighborhood. The dogs kept their distance, and I kept mine, but I always felt it was an uneasy truce. I didn't trust the animals to keep their side of the bargain. Walking home from the train, I would spot one lurking in a doorway or on a street corner, eyeing me with suspicion. I was sure I would have preferred a mugger, who at least would only want my money. I didn't know what these dogs wanted when they looked at me with their bloodshot eyes. That fall, I found out when a German shepherd mix followed me home from the train station one night. I thought running would only provoke him, so I continued to walk at a regular pace, faking nonchalance. The German shepherd trailed behind at an equally steady pace, steady pace, only faking nonchalance. At the, evening, at the entrance to my building, a steel door up two wide steps, I put my key in the lock and thought I was home free. The dog stayed on the street. And then in one great leap, he jumped up the two steps and attacked. With his front paws as strong as human hands, he pushed me up against the wall, ignoring my horrified screams, licked me right on the mouth, and tried to seduce me. When I finally convinced him I wasn't interested, he sat down by my feet, panting with a big smile. I spent a few minutes scratching behind his ears and then sneaked out through the door. I would have forgotten about him, except that the next day he was waiting for me at the train station again, and the day after that. Walking home with him became a routine. He knew a few simple commands, sit, stay, no, and I was convinced he started off life as somebody's pet. I even went to a pet store and bought a bag of nutritionally balanced dog biscuits for him. On our walks home from the train, I tried. I used the biscuits to teach him a few more commands, walk, lie down, stop trying to fuck me, which we abbreviated as stop. I hoped that if I got him into a more civilized condition, I could find a home for him. I would have liked to take him in myself, but Edward was allergic. Dogs, cats, hamsters, strawberries, angora, and certain types of mushrooms were all hazardous materials to be kept out of the apartment and handled with care. But I was glad to have at least one friend in the neighborhood, and over the next few months, it was my new friend, a nameless flea-ridden mutt, rather than Ed, who would be the first to see that I was not entirely myself. Not that Ed wasn't attentive, not that he didn't notice what was going on in my life, He just wasn't able to put the pieces together as quickly as the dog. 
Ed was my hero, my savior. Ed was the man who Im had imposed order on my... Oh, wow, there's a typo. <laughs> Ed was the man who had imposed order on my chaotic life. When I was single, I'd eaten cereal for dinner and ice cream for lunch. I'd kept my tax records in a shopping bag in the closet. I'd spent Saturdays in a hungover fog, watching hours of old black and white movies. With Ed, I spent Saturdays outdoors, doing the things I had always imagined I should do. Flea markets, lunches, museums. He did our taxes with itemized deductions every January and filed the records away in a real file cabinet. Here was a man who could finish any crossword puzzle, open any bottle, reach the top shelf at the grocery store without strain. Here was stability. Here was something I could rely on. My rock, day in and day out. Someone who loved me, who would never leave me alone. You can't blame this sophisticated, civilized man for not having the same instincts as a wild dog. What we think is impossible happens all the time. Like the time Ed let himself into the apartment and then lost his keys somewhere in the house and never found them again. Like the Halloween morning where I opened a cabinet of dishes, all stacked in perfect order, and the stack of plates on the highest shelf came toppling down one by one to bounce off my shoulders and shatter on the floor. Or when my friend Marlene picked up the phone to call her grandmother and someone was already on the line, one of her cousins calling to tell her her grandmother had died that morning. We could devote our lives to making sense of the odd, the inexplicable, the coincidental, but most of us don't. And neither did I. Soon after the tapping began, Ed and I started to fight. We didn't fight all the time. We didn't change all at once. It was just a little bickering at first. I thought it was a phase. I didn't know it was part of a pattern because I didn't know there was a pattern to see. I didn't know that it would escalate. If I had to pinpoint when the phase began, the phase that turned out not to be a phase at all, but the start of a steady decline, I would say Valentine's Day of that year. Our plan that Valentine's Day was to avoid the crowded restaurants and have a romantic night at home. I got off work first, so I was in charge of dinner. Ed, due home at 7-ish, was supposed to bring flowers and wine. By 7, I had cooked dinner, veal marsala and broccoli rob, set the table, and had a store-bought chocolate souffle in the oven. But then Ed called at 7.15 from the office and said he would be at least another hour or two. Some numbers had to be checked and rechecked, and they couldn't wait until tomorrow. I watched the news on television and then a few sitcoms. I ate a bag of pretzels watching a hospital drama. At 11, the news came on again. Not much had changed. Well into the nighttime talk shows, Ed came strolling in the door with no flowers and no wine. Hi, hun, he said, and walked across the loft to the sofa. He leaned in to give me a kiss. I pulled my head back. How dare he? I heard myself think. You're late, I said. He's always late, I thought. The tapping in the apartment was especially loud that night. Tap, tap. I know, I'm sorry, he said with an exaggerated hound dog face. Apology accepted? Tap, tap. No, I said. Apology not fucking accepted. Oh, honey, I... I... It's Valentine's Day, I yelled. Where the fuck have you been? Tap, 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 tap. I called, he yelled back. He walked into the bedroom to change into blue flannel pajamas and then yelled from there, You knew I would be late. You called four hours ago. Tap, 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 tap. I was furious now. Nothing could make this okay. I'm sorry about dinner, he called. Still in the bedroom. I told you I was sorry. You're always fucking sorry, I yelled back. You and your fucking apologies. Tap, 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 tap. It reached a sort of crescendo and then stopped for the night. 
I'd walked out of the bedroom and I walked in, slamming the door behind me. I lay in bed and my mind reviewed every late night, every broken promise of my marriage. An hour later, Ed came to bed and I pretended to be asleep. That night I had an odd dream, which I remembered very clearly the next morning. A red ocean was rimmed with a shore of darker crimson sand. In the ocean, a woman played in the waves. She was beautiful and had big dark eyes only. She was beautiful and had big dark eyes. Her only flaw was her huge head of black hair, which was matted into dirty locks. I watched her from the shore. She walked out of the ocean and the red liquid rolled off her skin like mercury. Then we were lying next to each other on the sand. Her teeth were as pointy as fangs. I thought they were pretty. I like you, she said. She reached over and twirled a lock of my hair around her fingers. I blushed and looked down at the red sand. Can I stay with you? she asked. With my index finger, I spelled out Y-E-S in the crimson sand. Next to that, she wrote her name. Nama, N-A-A-M-A-H. She put her arms around me, and we hugged like sisters. I loved her so much, I wanted us to be together always. I was sure I had seen that woman before. She came in and out of my mind, often the next few days. Like a few notes of a song, you just couldn't reconnect to the whole. Especially her lips. I was sure I had seen them before. It was a few days later that the name came back to me. Ed and I were at the kitchen table with our morning coffee and toast, talking about his friends, Alex and Sophia. We hadn't exactly made up after Valentine's Day fight, but we had let it go. Silently decided that it had never happened. I was half listening to a story about Alex's promotion, half thinking about what to wear that day, when her name came back to me, unannounced. Pansy, I called out. I knew, I knew her. Pansy had been an imaginary friend. I first thought of her when I was five or six, a mother substitute. I imagined her combing my hair, setting up for a tea party with me, tucking me into bed at night. My real mother had passed away when I was three from a heart attack, and my father remarried very quickly to a woman who had never wanted children, Noreen. Pansy wasn't another little girl. She was what I thought as a grown, what I thought of as a grown-up, but she wasn't. She, but she was a real teenager. She was modeled loosely on Tracy Berkowitz a glamorous 18-year-old who lived down the block. But unlike Tracy, Pansy was wise and soothing and cared about me. I was not so lonely as to be deranged to think that Pansy was real. There was no psychic break, no supernatural mischief. I was absolutely aware that I was real and Pansy was imaginary. Until one day she wasn't. I was on my way home from school. The image had loomed so large at six, had... The image that had loomed so large at six had, by the time I was nine, been relegated to a few minutes of attention before I went to sleep, where I imagined her kissing me goodnight. It was late spring, towards the end of the school year. The sun was bright, and the hum of summer was already in the air. Flies and crickets and far-off sounds of transams and Camaros in town. I was walking home from school, down a block of neat white houses with patches of green lawn, each almost identical to the next. I was walking slowly, not in a hurry to be home, or anywhere at all. The street was empty, except for a woman at the end of the block, standing at the crossroads as if she was waiting for someone. Without interest, I noticed the woman on the corner. As I got closer, she turned toward me and smiled. First, I thought she was Tracy Berkowitz, but no, I remembered Tracy, unwed, had moved to the city months ago with her cop boyfriend. The move was a minor scandal on the block, and there was no forgetting it. The woman on the corner was looking right at me now. She had a mess of black hair and a pink, pretty smile. I remember her skin, perfectly bisque, with a soft, translucent glow 
like an airbrushed photo from a magazine. It was Pansy. My heart beat like a hummingbird in my chest. I went into a kind of panic, thoughts falling on top of each other with no order. I couldn't be her, but it was. When I reached the corner, she stepped in front of me, and I stopped. She bent down, leaning her hands on her thighs. The sun shone directly on her face, but she didn't blink or squint. Hi, Amanda, she said. Her voice had a clear, sweet tone like a violin. All my fears dissipated when I heard that voice. Can you see me, Amanda? she asked. Just then, a growling firebird sped by the cross street, honking its horn. Instinctively, I blinked and turned towards it for a half second or less. When I turned back, she was gone. I was old enough to know that this was impossible, what had just happened, and that only crazy people believed in impossible events. I buried the memory so deeply, it didn't resurface until the dreams began. That's Come Closer. I recommend you guys check it out. You can get it on Kindle, or I, it's a good paperback. I would do the paperback. I mean, you could totally Kindle it, but I did. I got the paperback, and I, uh, I, I ran through it in in two sittings. All right, thanks everybody. Happy Father's Day.